God is glorified. He calls us to that for His glory and our good. We are back in Romans this morning. We're in the midst of a study in the book of Romans. We are in chapter 8. I know that's probably many of your favorite chapter in the book. But uh, we're going to look at one verse today. But I'm going to read verses 18 through 30 and then we'll set the stage and remember where we are and look at a, a very familiar verse to a lot of people. Famous verse, if that's the right thing to say. And try to plumb a little bit of the the depths of that verse. But let's look in verse 18 as we remember the section that we're in. Verse 18, this is God's Word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified... He also glorified. He finishes the work that He starts. Thus far, God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we have a Word from You. That You have revealed Yourself to us in a sufficient way. That You have revealed ourselves to us through your word, that your spirit is at work as your word is read and as your word is preached, as it is believed and as it is memorized and meditated on, your spirit is at work in your church. So bless me this day to preach your word 
and the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Bless us to hear it as your word in the power of the Spirit. Work savingly in hearts. Work to grow in grace, those of us who know you. Work in our hearts according to our great need as you know it. It is in the name of Jesus we pray it. Amen. No pain, no gain. We all love that, don't we? The pain you feel today will be the strength you feel tomorrow. And if you've been in the gym or read any fitness material, you know those are kind of fitness sayings, right? But this one kind of stuck out to me, and and, uh, so I wanted to make sure I used it. Pain doesn't just show up in our lives for no reason. Pain doesn't just show up in our lives for no reason. And we know that physical exercise that is effective usually involves a level of pain and discomfort. We want to get in shape, but we don't want to hurt. We want to get in shape, but we don't want to be hungry. But I'm here to tell you, eat less and move more is really the only thing that works. But see, we, we, we embrace that pain because of the goal. It's to get in better shape. And you endure the pain for the result. And in fact, that the pain gives you a hope that, that, that in the midst of this workout pain, it's being productive. Now we're talking about soreness there, not you hurting yourself with bad form and all of that. But anyway, when you do things, do it the right way. But the pain is working for you. The, 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 the energy, the, the, the exercising is working for you to make you stronger. Bit by bit, month by month, rep by rep, you, you maintain and even get stronger by embracing pain. My brother was one who didn't want to embrace pain and therefore spent a lot of money on things that never worked, like pills you can take to get in shape. No workout, no diet. You just take this pill and the fat will melt away from your wallet. The good news today is that this is true spiritually as well. Look at me. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're rested in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, all of your pain is productive. Remember Jesus' words, in this world you will have trouble. So just do the best you can. Is that what he said? No, be of good cheer, for I have overcome it, implication For you, I have overcome the world. If you are his follower, his victory is yours. Now, in Christ Jesus, everything has to work for you, even your pain and your suffering and you're groaning. 
See, we're studying the book of Romans. We've come to verse 28 in chapter 8. Paul has shown us in the, in the first part of the book that everybody needs a Savior, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile, that's the world, Paul, right? Are lost and need a Savior. Paul has shown us that that Savior is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that through faith in Christ, we're forgiven of all of our sins. We are clothed in His righteousness. We are adopted into God's family. Justified, declared righteous by God. And at that point, we begin to be sanctified. The power of sin is broken we don't have to evade anymore and we begin to be transformed into the image of Christ. And such we come up to in that glorious statement in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are trusting in Christ and Christ alone. We are not condemned. We are cleansed. We are clothed. We are empowered to grow in grace to walk by the Spirit and put sin to death growingly as we walk through this earth. And in your sanctification, you look for growth, not perfection. Perfection comes when He finishes the work, when we're glorified. But as we walk through this world, we look for growth because He works in His children to grow His children. And some of that is through making every effort like Peter talks about. A lot of it also is true. Uh, the way that we grow is by knowing things better. Replacing bad knowledge with good knowledge, right? Growing in what we know about God leads to resting more in God and living more faithfully for God in Christ. And today is mostly helping us in what we need to know so that we can embrace proper expectations in this world and have here here's the real goal so that we have peace in the midst of the storm so that we don't just have peace when things are going good and there's no trouble but even in the midst of that trouble that Christ said would come in this fallen world that we can walk through it with peace if we know our God and the more and better we know our God the more consistently we will walk with that peace that passes understanding, even through very, very difficult situations. So as we look at verse 28 today, here's the main point I want you to take away from it. Embrace God's comfort in His promise to work everything out for the good of His children. Embrace God's comfort in His promise to work everything out for the good of of his children. Look back at verse 28 in, in chapter 8 of Romans. Look how that verse starts. And we know. No doubt about this. This is something we know because we've sort of learned it in our circumstances. Well, we might have seen it proven. But no, this is, this is part of God's revelation. This is what the things that he has revealed to teach us about himself. It's not isolated experience, but it's revelation and therefore it's word here. We know, although that, see, remember where we've come from. Although we groan under our present suffering, right? In verses 18 to 25. And although we don't know exactly how to pray in every circumstance, the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us in verses 26 and 27. I'll point you back to those sermons. But right now, right here, we know something. 
There's a promise here. And there's a promise we have to lay hold of and hold on to. And the promise is this. All things work together for good. I think the NAS is is doing this better than the ESV here. The New American Standard says God causes all things to work together for good. That's the idea. In the terse, the short wording of the original language that's here, the idea is not, they, it just happens to work out, which is not what the ESV is saying anyway. But I think the NAS makes it clear that it is God who causes all things to work together for good. All things. Think about that. Everything. The promise is that God works it all out for good. Even our deepest hurts and our greatest fears and our darkest confusion and all the things we wish had never happened some of which are sin and in and of themselves evil. Not everything is good, but God can take everything and work it for good. Right? That's the promise. That's what we have to cling to. And what is the good here? We want to be careful when we're reading Scripture and when we're studying Scripture that we're paying attention to the words. What is the good this verse is talking about? So what this good means is that He promises to always make me comfortable, always keep me healthy, and always give me a lot of material blessing. Some, for a lot of us, that would be the absolute worst thing God could do for us. And you want to prove that true? Take your child and give them everything they ever want and all the stuff they ever want. Never make them work for anything. And you know what you'll raise? A terror. A self-centered, spoiled terror. And the kids are saying, hush, let them spoil me. Listen, no, don't worry. The grandparents will do that enough, okay? No, no, no. The good that's here is, look at the context. It's conformity to Christ. You can see it in verse 29. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We're predestined to be glorified at the end of verse 30. That's the good that we're talking about. The ultimate good is redemption in Christ's likeness, and that's what He's working out through everything that He brings into our lives. And it's not always easy to see, is it? In fact, a lot of times it's not easy to see. That's why we have to walk by faith and not by sight. That's why we need to know something about our God. Have you ever seen an artist and, and they start painting? And, and a lot of times they do this on the street because it's really cool the way it comes together. But they'll just start making strokes. And you think, I don't know where this is going. And then the more strokes they make on the painting, suddenly it starts coming together into what looks like a beautiful masterpiece. But if you just look at the individual strokes, you won't be able to bring that together. Or if you buy a puzzle, thankfully on the front of the box you get to see what it's supposed to look like before you start working on it, right? 
But see, that's what God is doing in our lives. Think about the, the brush strokes of God's providence. New, new birth, child born. We get married. We graduate college or high school. We meet that right person. We lose our job. We lose our health. We lose our home. We're betrayed, lied about. You see how there's many varied strokes of providence in their life, but they're all coming together for this grand picture. And we can't see it all the time, but we have to take it by faith. And if you want to know where, where this train is going, look to Jesus. Read the Gospels. See who the Son of God is. That's what this is all about, conforming you into the image of Christ. See, God is working out His plan of redemption. Planned before the foundation of the world. Working out in time His glory in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bringing a people to Himself that He will dwell with forever. And then in our own individual lives, He's working to conform us into the image of Christ. And each stroke is exactly, exactly what it needs to be and where it needs to be. God promises to work out everything for good and every stroke of His providential brush is productive. I've often used this illustration of a, of, of a sculptor, right? And the God His Spirit is taking the Word and chiseling away everything in us that doesn't look like Jesus. Michelangelo saw David in that rock. But he had to chisel away everything that didn't... I don't know how he knew what David looked like. I'm sure he didn't, but anyway. Turning this mess of life in a fallen world, of seeing the backside of the tapestry, how all the knots are, of living under the sun and having to look above the sun by faith and see our God reigning there and knowing that He's working for us to make all things work together for good. See, not all the pieces are good in and of themselves, but He promises to work them all together for good to make us like Christ. Douglas Moo said this. Now, watch this. The promise to us is that there is nothing in this world that... Now watch it. There is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage. The promise to us is that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage, which is Christ's likeness, glorification. When He appears, we'll be like Him and dwell with Him forever. So the promise is God promises, God causes all things to work together for good. Let's look a minute at the foundation of that promise. There's some things that have to be true for God to be able to do what He just said He does. Right? The foundation of this promise 
is God's sovereignty. Now, listen to this. God can't guarantee a single thing unless He is in control of every single thing. That's my way of saying what R.C. Sproul said. If God is not sovereign, God is not God. God can't guarantee a single thing unless He's in control of every single thing. The Sproul quote. I believe we have a slide on that. If God is not sovereign, God is not God. If there is one... Now watch this. What is this? How does this boil down to us? If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, there's not the slightest confidence that you can have that any promise that God has ever made will come to pass. If He's not in control of everything, some, some wrench might fly into the machine and cause it all to, to fail. If there's one maverick molecule, Sproul says, that could mess everything up. If God's not in control of everything, He can't promise you anything about the future. And I know some of us have been in context maybe where the sovereignty of God was used more as a bully club on us, but the answer is not to not teach it. It's to teach it rightly. Okay? And so I'm going to give you some bullet points right here, and then I'm going to tease you and try to get you to come back tonight because we're going to expand upon God's sovereignty tonight. But listen, here's a few bullet points, and some of you will know where this comes from. Before creation... God ordained whatsoever comes to pass. God in His infinite wisdom, with His purpose in mind of glory in Christ, before creation, He ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Ultimately speaking, there are no accidents in God's world. Yet He did it in such a way, and He does it in such a way that He is not the author of sin. We can't blame our sin on God. You're sovereign. I'm a puppet. You made me do it. That's just foolish talk. Because the Word clearly tells us that God is not the author of sin, that He doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He doesn't make anyone sin. But He can sure use it for His glory. The last thing I'll say about this summary is God doesn't violate the will of people. In other words, and we kind of said that already, He doesn't make us sin. We are somehow God is sovereign and in control and has foreordained whatever comes to pass and yet man is still responsible and makes choices that we're responsible for. Judas could not blame his choices on God's providence. Judas was responsible for the decisions that he made. And he reaped the consequences of those decisions. So God is... See, and what we're starting to do is our minds are starting to spark, aren't they? It's like, wait a minute, you can't have it both ways. And if you're a rationalist, you'll never get there. There's no way God can be completely sovereign and I, I am responsible for what I do. Well, there's no way in your mind that that can be true. And I'll argue with you about that after you fully explain to me how Christ can be fully God and fully man in one person. Or 
how the God is three persons in one God forever. When you, when you tease those out to their end, then we'll work. See, you see what I'm saying? It's just showing us that we don't have the mental capacity to understand everything God understands. At some point, we have to say, Uncle, trust you. Resurrection of Christ proves it. I'm going to believe it. You revealed it. God foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He's not the author of sin. He doesn't violate our wills. We are free to make choices and responsible for those choices. God promises to work all things together for our good. There's a book over there that a guy gave us a case of, and it's it's A.W. Pink's book on the attributes of God. Recommend that to you. Love to have you read that. But I, I have a long quote by him that hopefully this will explain somewhat of God's sovereignty to us this morning. But Pink says this about the sovereignty of God. He says, the sovereignty of God. What do we mean by that expression or this expression? Now he's going to explain. We mean the supremacy of God. The kingship of God. The Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say to Him, What thou doest thou? That's old language. What, what are you doing? There's your, for those of you who are taking notes, there's your reference, Daniel 4.35. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn who was in control, didn't he? And when he did, his reason returned to him. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsel, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. Psalm 115.3 To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor among the nations. Psalm 22.28 Setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases Him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the only potentate, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15 Such is the God of the Bible. To say that God is sovereign is nothing other than to say He is Lord. That'll help you with the deity of Christ in the New Testament, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. So see, the the unremovable foundation of God's promise to work all things together for good is His sovereignty. If He's not sovereign, He can't do that. He can't promise that. Because something will get away from Him. If He's not sovereign, He's not God. And there's something or someone above Him. You need, in order to have peace in your heart in the midst of this fallen, dark world, This veil of tears. You need a robust doctrine of God's sovereignty, not just in your books, but in your heart. We need to know what we're saying when we say He is Lord. We're saying that He is in control of every single thing. Therefore, He can guarantee to work all things together for good. Come back tonight. We'll talk more about that.
Let's look at the comfort of God's promise. His promise to work all things together for good. I, I pulled this out of the Heidelberg Catechism. If, you, if you're not familiar with catechisms, maybe do that because there are really a lot of really good questions and answers about what the Bible teaches. If you've never read the Heidelberg Catechism, especially the first question, do your soul a favor because it's summarizing what the Bible teaches. Okay? And it's glorious. But this is just kind of in the middle of that paragraph of Heidelberg number one. He also preserves me in such a way, and this gives me comfort, right? And he's, we'll see what Jesus has taught. He, God preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Look at me. Does that mean that God's just worried about how many hairs are on your head? I can count the hairs on some of our heads. That doesn't say anything good about me. No, it's telling you he's down to the detail, in control. Not even a sparrow falls apart from his will. Right? Nothing's out of control. You can rest. All of your days were written down before there was one of them. Psalm 139 says. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You'll get sick sometimes. You'll lose some stuff. You're going to die one day. No matter what Kenneth Copeland says. And that was not a positive reference, in case you're wondering. Now look what it says. Without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. He's got me. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. That's just bringing out what we're looking at in this verse. He promises to work all things together for the good. What is that? That my, I might come to faith in Christ, I might grow in grace in Christ, and I might eventually be glorified and be made like Christ. So, all of my groaning, all of my suffering, all of my agony in this fallen world will be used to good, along with all of my blessing on the positive side, the way we see blessing. It'll be used for God's glory and my good. Listen to me. Look at me. My suffering, your suffering is not outside of God's plan and purpose for me and for you. And in Christ, it must work for me to make me more like Him to accomplish all God's purposes in my life. See, there is a God and it's not me. And it's not you. And He has a purpose that He planned before the foundation of the world that He's working out. And praise God, He has included you in it to such that you are trusting in His Son and have a future with Him. But we got to get ourselves off the throne and start sitting at His feet. Not my will, but your will be done. I know you have me. Not a hair can fall of my head. This thing I'm going through right now that I wish wasn't happening and that I don't understand... Is part of your purpose. Help me to learn from it and grow in it and trust you in the midst of it and have your peace as I walk through it knowing you are with me and for me. My suffering is not outside of His plan. Think about Joseph. You know the, the, the Bible story of Joseph, right? Go read Genesis. You'll read of Joseph. Think about Joseph. God made a lot of grand promises to Joseph. even gave him dreams about that. Right? Of him ruling over his brethren. 
There was some coming glory for Joseph. But that path to that glory was suffering and groaning and trouble and confusion. Because when Joseph, you can argue whether this was wise or not, when he told his brothers about his dreams, they didn't like it. And they didn't like him. And he was sold into slavery. And every time it seemed like he was getting his head above water, boom! Seems like he was knocked back down. And yet exactly what God had promised, he worked out in his life. To such that one day his brothers stood before him, not even knowing who he was. He had authority over them. And it was for a good purpose that many might be saved in the midst of that drought. Joseph. God worked all things together for good in Joseph's life. And that included some pain and suffering. But you know what? It was necessary. He learned a lot through it. And it shaped him. And it made him ready for that glory to come such that he could stand before his brothers when he revealed himself to them and they were so afraid he was going to do the get back on them. He said this in Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me. Now watch what the next thing is. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they have been today. God's purpose was good and it meant the blessing and saving of a lot of lives there and, and, and it was a grand and glorious promise to Joseph but the path was struggle and suffering before glory. There's a cross before a crown. Right? In this world you will have trouble but be encouraged. I've overcome it for you because I am working all things together for good. You won't be able to figure out how this is going to work out in every detail but you can trust me with it and you can rest in the midst of it if you know who your God is. So lastly, the recipients of God's promise. Look back in verse 28. In the ESV, it kind of starts and ends with this. In some versions, it, uh, all this comes at the end. It's really saying the same thing. But when, what he said, he says, we know that, look at the first one. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. This is not a qualification, okay? It's not a, it's not a qualification. It's not, there's a certain level to which you have to get in loving God before this will be true for you not what this is. This is a character trait. When God redeems us, when He brings us to Christ, He gives us a new heart and then that new heart loves Him and grows in loving for Him by joyfully keeping His Word. But it says this promise is to those who love God. And look at the last part of the verse. Who are those who love God? Look at it. It says those who are called according to His purpose. What does it mean that it says those who are called? Is it just an invitation that we can accept or reject? It's not. It's more effective than that. (laughs) 
Right? There, when, just back off a minute. We talk about in theology the general call and the effectual call, right? And the general call happens every Sunday when I stand up here and preach the gospel and I, I plead with you to come to faith in Jesus. I, I exhort you, encourage you, beg you sometimes to turn and to trust Christ. So that's the general call in the preaching of the gospel. And in the midst of that general call, the Spirit's at work in hearts with an effectual call. So this word called, this word as Paul's using it means to be summoned by God or called to faith. Not an invitation, but it means being effectually called into a gracious relationship. Look at verse 30. I can prove it to you. We'll come back and look at this later. But verse 30 talks about being predestined. Yes, that's a Bible word. It's not just Presbyterians who believe in predestination, okay? Baptist and every other stripe who's being faithful with the word should too. But look, those whom he predestined, he called. What kind of call is that? Look, the next phrase. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Put it together. Those whom he called, he glorified. This is him giving us a new heart in the midst of the preaching of the gospel. This is him, we, us being born again as the gospel comes to us so that we turn and trust in Jesus. So those who have been called, effectually called to faith, therefore they're the ones that love God. They're the ones that trust Christ and Christ alone. It is for them and to them that this promise comes. We're called according to His purpose and His purpose is that we should become like Christ. We've already seen that. That we should share in Christ's glory. That we should be glorified. So we're called of the Father to the Son, by the Spirit, through the Word. For good. Bottom line, it's the recipients of this promise that are God's children. This promise that God's going to work everything together for your good is true of God's children. If you're not trusting in Christ this morning, it's not true of you yet. I mean, today may be the day of your salvation or two weeks from now might be the day of your salvation. Right? This promise is for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose, those who are in Christ Jesus we've already talked about. Those who are trusting Christ. Listen to me. Are you trusting Christ and Christ alone for your salvation this morning? Are you trusting yourself or are you trusting Christ? That's really how far it boils down. If you're trusting Christ, not with a perfect faith, none of us have that. Right? We're being glorified. Some days the scale of our faith is up here and some days it's over here. And, right? Oh, come on now. Be real. But it's, it's a faith. If we, trust in, if we have a genuine trust in Christ, that's a faith God has given us and He will sustain it. To the end. Yes, there'll be days when he lets us feel like it's not there. Right? But he will sustain it and sustain us. Look what Thomas Schreiner says in his commentary. God's unstoppable purpose in calling believers to salvation cannot be frustrated. And thus he employs all things to bring about the plan he had from the beginning in the lives of believers. So our, our application of this verse is, is really 
very easy in that it's to embrace what this verse is teaching. Right? And our main point, receive that comfort. But see, to do this, to have this comfort that is yours in Christ means you have to know some stuff about God and embrace it. That He is sovereign. Meaning He is in control of every single thing. See, without the truth of God's sovereignty, there are no guarantees. Therefore, there is no peace. Things could be getting away from God here a little bit. If God's not in control, total control, you are at the mercy of chance. There's no comfort there. Because it's not the real world, okay? I've said this already, but I'll say it again. Bottom line is you desperately need sound theology. We want peace, but we don't want to put in the work, do we? We want peace and we want God to just zap us with peace. That's really not how... He wouldn't have given us a book if, if He was just going to zap it all. Okay? He didn't give us a genie lamp. We can rub on and get what we want. He gave us a book that we might know Him and rest in Him and trust in Him. You have a big God. You just need to know it. Some of us have a small God. I mean the God in our minds. Right? You have a big God who is sovereign, who is in control of every single thing, who foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, yet without violating your will, you're still free to make choices, and He is not the author of sin. No matter how many arguments we want to have about that. Embrace God's absolute sovereignty. That's application number one. Number two, and here's where it brings us comfort. Put all of your suffering in the context of His sovereignty in this promise that we've studied today. I don't understand this. I don't even know how this is going to work. But I trust you, God, that this is going to be worked together by you for my good and your glory. Every one of my days were written in your book. I embrace that. Right? Stonewall Jackson, I think, who said, I'm as brave in battle as I am in bed because I'm going to be here till the day he's written down for me to take me out. That's the kind of bonus this stuff can give you because it's true. It's true about your God. So put all of your suffering. Notice I didn't say there's a way for you to not have any suffering. When Jesus said in this world you'll have trouble, I got nothing over him. Remember our study in, Ecclesi in Ecclesiastes. I almost said ecclesiology. That's something different. If you haven't, go back and listen to that. You know, Life in a Fallen World. It's, 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 it's a bigger series on that. But put all of your suffering, your groaning, your confusion, your fear, put it all under this promise. If God is not suffering, you, if, if God is not sovereign, I can't talk today, you have no guarantee that your pain will be worked for good. But since He is, all of your trials, all of your pain will be productive to make you like Jesus Christ. Every trial then is just mercy in disguise. Because it has to work for you. Some of them are very deep and hard and some of them in comparison are minor and there's a lot in between. 
But the way we prepare for those days of trial and tribulation is to pour in to our God before we get there, to knowing Him. So that when we get there, we know nothing, you know, nothing's, you know, we don't accuse Him like the disciples in the boat. Don't you care that we're dying? What did Jesus say to them? Where's your faith? That's the question God is always asking us, isn't it? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And that's what trials examine us in. And listen, put all of your suffering in the context of this promise that He is working all things together for the good of His children and then believe the promise that all will be worked out for good. And believe it now before you get into that glaring trial that seeks to hide all things about God from you. Maybe best to give you the highest illustration. Think about the cross. And think about those disciples. And they had found the Messiah, the son of David. They were going to sit on thrones with him. They were going to reign, right? He was going to destroy the Romans, take all their troubles away. They knew he was the Messiah. They'd seen him heal. They'd heard his teaching, many miracles. Called Lazarus out of the grave for crying out loud. But enter into their shoes at that moment he was crucified. That cross looked like defeat. Evil won. This is not how it's supposed to be. Jesus' enemies surely thought they had won. And His disciples thought all hope was gone. And this pain was intense. They loved Him. They trusted Him. They had, yes, some false expectations. They didn't see the suffering servant coming before the conquering king. And so bad theology hurt them in that spot. But God hadn't opened their hearts to that either. But standing before that cross, hope was gone. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped that he would be the one. But he was crucified and now it's the third day and, you know, they're going home. In their hearts, they were probably thinking, there is no way at all that this can be good. And many times we think that in our trials and sufferings, don't we? But then Sunday came. And Jesus was raised from the grave. He blew the door off the tomb. The, the door was not just opened. It was blown away from the tomb. All the Roman guards left. You would too. If an angel suddenly comes and... and but he was raised from the grave and he met with those disciples and that turned them from cowering, fearful confused men into men who were bold as lions that took the gospel to the ends of this earth because Christ was raised from the dead. Why did He have to die? Because He's saving a people. And the scripture is true. The soul that sins will die. Sin brings condemnation, separation from God, wrath eternally. If we're outside of Christ. 
But see, Christ came as the Lamb of God predicted in the Old Testament to live a perfect life. He was the spotless Lamb, perfectly righteous, deserved only blessing. And then He took our guilt upon Himself and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and said before He went into the tomb, what? Oh, come on. It is finished. To Telestai, paid in full. Under the power of death for a time, and raised the third day. So that that verse that all of our children know, John 3.16, might be put in Scripture and we might come to faith. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes into Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's no condemnation left for us because He took it upon Himself that we might be clothed in His righteousness and forgiven of all of our sins, made children of God, and have hope in this world. And yes, for the world to come. So trust Jesus. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. And more than 500 people at one time saw Him on one occasion. And He's ascended into heaven. He's reigning now for His church and He's coming again someday. Trust, rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what I said at first, maybe this helps you explain why I locked on to that quote. Pain doesn't just show up in our lives for no reason. It didn't for Jesus and it doesn't for us. God is sovereign over all of our pain and He is the one that sees to it that for His children all things work together for good which is His glory and our good, our redemption, our salvation in Jesus Christ. So trust Him with the salvation of your soul, but trust Him with your daily life on this planet. That He is your loving Heavenly Father who is with you and for you and making all things work together for good. I want to end with quoting from a hymn that we sing sometimes, and I would encourage you to go back and read the entire hymn. But the hymn is, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He shall, he shall my... <clears throat> Whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. See, see how in this song we're embracing the sovereignty of God. We're embracing His ordination of all things and His promise to work it together for good. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. I trust Him. So our main point, embrace God's comfort in His promise to work everything out for good for His children, which is you, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Help us to trust You, Lord. Help us to love You. Help us to love Your Word and be in Your Word. Help us to know You through Your truth. Lord Jesus, You prayed, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. Thank You for revealing Yourself in Your Word, which is about Your Son and our salvation in Him and Your glory.
draw us into knowing you. That we might have peace in the midst of the storm and be light and salt to those who don't know you. And know that you will take us through. And that in the end, we will be like Jesus. Help us to more pray, not my will, but yours be done. Help us to lean into your perfection. And trust and rest in you. And know that you are with us and for us. That every one of our days are written in your book. That all of the trials we go through come through your loving care. And you promise to use them both for your glory and our good. We can't rationalize that out, Lord, in all of its detail. Help us to trust you. Help us to look to Christ. Help us to look to that cross and know that if you'll do that for us, you'll withhold no good thing from us. And that just as Jesus was raised from that grave, we too someday will be raised incorruptible. So we praise you, Lord. I pray for those who don't know you, that you would be at work in their hearts, that they might turn and trust in you. I pray for those who do know you, but don't, aren't confident about it. We can be saved and not have assurance. I pray that you would work assurance in us as we draw near to you in your word. And for those of us who know you, who are walking with you, just help us to stay committed to knowing our God to loving you, to serving you. Lord, lastly, for those who right now are in the midst of a difficult, difficult trial, if they don't know you, draw them to you. If they are your children, Lord, comfort them with these truths. Comfort and strengthen them in the midst of of their trial. And help us as your church to come around them and encourage and strengthen and serve them. Lord, lift high your Son. Draw all kinds of people to yourself. Save and sanctify your church. Build your kingdom. Revive us, O Lord. We look to you in faith. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.